Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is the best little horror house in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is a really exciting one. You might know him as a writer for Comedy Bang Bang and Solar Opposites, the baker behind the breadcast, and recently credited on the new Animaniac series for one of the excellent Pinky and the Brain sequences. Joe Saunders is here. Welcome, Joe. Oh, it's great to be here. Hey, thanks for calling out my Animaniac segment. Oh, I loved it. And I was like, I saw your name pop up, and I was like, holy crap. (laughs) You know, I was surprised to see that too. I didn't know they made, I, you know, luckily got to pitch some ideas for that show a couple years ago. And I, I knew that they liked that one, but I didn't know it had actually kind of gone the, gone the whole length of getting made and getting in the show. So it was super cool and a fun surprise. Hell yeah. And it, it was a great one. So uh, I'm, I'm sure that that was really, th- I was, was Animaniacs a big part of your sort of comedy experience coming up? Yes. I loved Animaniacs when I was a kid and I'd actually kind of forgotten it. Well, I, I don't think I realized like how impactful it was until like I was rewatching it. I think around the time when I was pitching that thing and I was like, Oh, so much of this is like ingrained in my brain is like, yeah. I don't know. I just love like I, the awesome thing about Animaniacs is how many references they had in that show. And as a yeah. kid, I got none of them, <laughs> but I still like enjoyed them. It was kind of the Simpsons was the same way where you just yeah. were like, I would be like laughing at like, <laughs> that's something that I maybe <laughs> should know about, but one day, uh, one day yeah. I'll come back and I'll get it. <laughs> and now I, yeah, now that's my whole thing is just referencing stuff. Hell yeah. Well, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your history with horror? Oh, sure. Um, well, I'm a, I've always been a huge movie buff um, ever since I was like a teenager. And then I, you know, so I've loved watching film and have really tried to like get into like every genre. Horror kind of interestingly, I think, is a bit of a blind spot to me, especially, and I say that like, I've, I feel like I've seen like, all the big horror movies, but compared to like some of my friends and I'm sure compared to you, but there are like some movies, like some of my favorite films, I would consider horror films like Alien and Aliens and The Thing, the John Carpenter Thing. Sure. And I grew up like loving like really like old, old timey horror, like all the universal horror movies were like movies that were really like huge to me oh, as a yeah. kid. Do you feel like your horror and comedy preferences kind of bleed into each other or the ones that you named are pretty... Uh, strictly horror a lot of the time. Uh, And so I'm curious if they kind of exist in two separate lanes for you or if you're like, yeah, I can get behind a horror comedy here and there or never the twain shall meet. You know, I, I love the idea of a horror comedy and there are like some movies, I really love like the original Scream. Yeah. And I think that that is a very fun, that has like a lot of like humor in it and is like a great fun like crowd movie that gets like big laughs. I also love like Cabin Fever, I feel like is a really funny movie that has like big horror parts. But when I think my favorite, the the horror movies that are like my favorites are ones that kind of don't go for humor, that are go for like the tone and go for like a style. Yeah. And really commit to like an atmosphere. So those are, which is maybe because like that feels like so out of my wheelhouse of things to do. Right. So I'm like delighted when I like (laughs) can go, you know, watch a movie like that and kind of get caught up in that world. So I don't know. I mean, what uh, what what are your favorite like comedy horror movies? I'm trying to think of like. See, I'm actually kind of the same way where I tend to like movies that are horror, but are written by funny people Mm -hmm. as opposed to a movie that is deliberately deliberately trying to strike the balance of a horror comedy. You know, there there are some that I think do cross the threshold into movies that I like. You know, Cabin in the Woods was one of the ones that got that was like, yeah funny enough that I was able to tolerate it as a scared person. Um, It wasn't that long ago that I was too scared to watch any horror. (laughs) And, and, uh, and cabin in cabin in the woods was really one that sort of put me on the track to, 
being able to immerse myself in it because you know you you have something to latch onto and be like I can hold on to the, these laugh moments when yeah. I'm scared. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, I mean, Cabin in the Woods. Um, but yeah, you know, stuff like Reanimator, where it's like it's funny, but yes. I don't know that I would be like that's a comedy movie. <laughs> yes, that's true. Reanimator is a great one. That's like a it's super enjoyable, and it does kind of like yeah, I don't know if it's like a comedy, but there is like you do kind of like get that like entertainment. I don't know. It kind of scratches that comedy itch in the same yeah. way. Yeah, I think that's a great example of like what I would would if I was going to say like a horror comedy and like enjoy one like Reanimator definitely is. Hell yeah. Uh, is there a subgenre within horror that you find yourself more drawn to? Like, I'm not, I, I don't believe in ghosts, so I have a hard time really latching on to like paranormal movies. Um, yeah. Is there something that you do f- find yourself more drawn to? I would say definitely, I would say sci fi horror stuff like Alien and the, the Thing are all because I love science fiction. Yeah. And so anything in that world I definitely can get really into and I do kind of like I guess it's gotten a little tired now but I, I I was really interested when there's this kind of this like art house horror that's cropped up in the last few years I thought that that was really interesting at first some of those are like you know not so good but when that <laughs> like the witch I thought the witch was awesome hey man I got a friggin black Philip tattoo <laughs> oh that's awesome <laughs> <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah, I love The Witch. I think that that is really telling, considering you were saying that you you like these atmospheric movies, and yeah. I think that that is what art house horror is really, the emphasis is on the atmosphere. Yes. That, yeah. When the, when I come across one of those, like, I'm trying to think of the other ones I watched. There was parts of, like, It Follows. Like, It Follows, I had, like, a few issues. I hadn't seen It Follows till this year, but I thought, like, It Follows was, like, really, like, wonderfully directed yeah. and, like, styled, but then had some, and I loved the concept of it, but then the movie, I thought, I was a little, not thrilled. I wasn't, I didn't love as much as I hoped I would be. Mm-hmm. But there were parts of that where I think just like the direction and the style and all that that kind of art house stuff like really elevated that movie and got it to like a really, really like interesting place. It's, yeah, I totally agree, especially since it was kind of one of the predecessors of this newer wave. Um, it came out before this was really sort of the the popular uh, sort of style. So uh, I, I think that it, it did a lot. I, I agree that there are issues with the movie, but I, I think that it, sort of the aesthetic and the atmosphere that it creates where you're like, I don't even know what time period this is taking place in. Right. (laughs) And you're not sure also if that's a choice or not. Like I I kept (laughs) thinking like, is, is, are we supposed to feel this way or are we not? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It keeps you guessing. Um, and speaking of keeping you guessing, the movie that we're talking about is a staple of David Lynch's filmography, his 1986 horror noir film that changed the game, Blue Velvet. Are, are you typically a fan of Lynch's work? Yes, I love David Lynch. I think he's the best. I'm, my favorite Lynch thing is Twin Peaks. I think. Oh, yeah, baby. <laughs> Twin Peaks, and especially the Twin Peaks, re- The Return, were awesome and just got made me such a bigger Lynch fan than I already am. And I think, you know, Twin Peaks has a lot of blue blue velvet has a lot of twin peaks in it is kind oh, of yeah. like maybe i think some people would say it's like a trial run for twin peaks <laughs> and but it, you know and so i was watching it today when i was watching it to get ready for our talk today i was like i've thought about that i was like ooh, is twin peaks just the better version of this but i'm like i don't know i think blue velvet has like a lot of interesting things that stand on its own and explores mm. different ideas than twin peaks yeah but i i just love everything blinch does i think he's uh, I don't know. I think he is a genius. I don't like to. I think that's sometimes lame to say film directors are geniuses, but I think he is a guy who has knows how to do something that no one else can do. Yeah, and that people try to copy him and they can't copy him. Folks, I'm co-signing this. I also think that David Lynch is a genius. <laughs> so, 
I as as with many of his movies, this the cast in Blue Velvet is just off the wall incredible. Although at the time they were a lot of unknowns, with some of his usual stable making appearances. Uh, the stars include Kyle MacLachlan, Isabella Rossellini, uh, Dennis Hopper, and Laura Dern. And obviously, he works with Laura and Kyle a lot, <clears throat> um, in, including in Twin Peaks. You know, they both show up, especially in uh, The Return there. Uh, Kyle MacLachlan has like three roles in it. Oh, yeah. So. <laughs> but developing the script was an interesting combination of Lynch just like pulling together feelings and incorporating some autobiographical elements uh, as early as 1973. And to me, this wasn't really a shock because uh, based on his book, Catching the Big Fish, which I highly recommend the audiobook of because he narrates it himself, this is a pretty common process for him where he like meditates looking for creativity and just like allows feelings to wash over him. And th- so the first feeling that he got was just the name of the movie. <laughs> he said, I'm going to it's going to be Blue Velvet. his second feeling was the image of a severed human ear lying in a field and he said oh man i don't i i thought about going for a david lynch impression but i don't want to do it i'm just gonna say it (laughs) he said i don't know why it had to be an ear except it needed to be an opening of a part of the body a hole into something else and the ear sits on the head and goes right into the mind so it felt perfect. And the final feeling that he had was the Bobby Vinton version of the song Blue Velvet and the mood and time period that the song conjured for him. And so it's really interesting to see how that's it's like so big picture for this movie. Like none of the things that really make it interesting are in those like feelings, but Using that as like a jumping off point for him to just be like, I trust my own creative process enough that I'm going to use this, uh, I, I just think is is really great. Yes, I totally agree. I think an interesting thing about Lynch is that I've heard him say that stuff too, or like through meditation, he kind of comes across like images or ideas. And then he's like, okay, this is the starting off point. And that can feel like almost random. You're like, okay, well, it's uh, it's an ear because he like saw in his mind an ear. <laughs> but he makes it make sense like yeah it, it's all like is there like there's always it's not just random images on screen like everything is there for a reason it ties in together sometimes it takes like some digging to figure that out but it, that's kind of like the reward of watching one of these movies and especially blue velvet absolutely and so yeah he takes these feelings and he incorporated both his own trauma and nostalgia trauma in the form of as a young boy he saw a woman staggering naked down the street and crying and this really like affected him he literally sat down and just started crying with his brother (laughs) understandable that's a a pretty scary fucking thing but the nostalgia in the form of having kyle mclaughlin sort of dress like him and bringing in some of his associations of americana his father was a research scientist for the department of agriculture in washington so as much as the picket fences and rose bushes are part of the iconography uh, so too for him is like the forests and lumberjacks and all that stuff so really conjures just a great feeling uh in this in this town and so after elephant man he wrote two drafts of this movie that he didn't like he said they were full of unpleasantness and not much else (laughs) but which i mean there's still plenty of unpleasantness but but, uh he finally was satisfied and production got underway in 1984 unfortunately for david what also happened in 1984 was dune um we we don't need to get too far into dune but basically it comes out and everyone hated it including david Uh, although there has been some rehabilitation of its image over the year david himself is still extremely displeased with it and primarily because of the studio meddling 
that came about on that script. And so when Dino De Laurentiis came to David and said, hey, if you take a pay cut and work within a budget of $6 million, you can have complete control and final cut. And David was just ecstatic. He said, after Dune, I was so, I was down so far that anything was up. So this was just a euphoria. And when you work with that kind of feeling, you can take chances. You can experiment. And I mean, I've literally already said this, but David's commitment to his own expression is not only something that I admire, but I think is crucial to creating genuine art. And I mean, you can create a fine movie that's there to entertain you and not do much more by having like a committee bring it all together. But to get something that really sticks to your ribs, like Blue Velvet does, you can't constantly be compromising. And so the way that David Lynch, well, actually, before we move on, I'm curious what you think about sort of his approach to being like, I have to have final cut on all this stuff and and what that means for his sort of artistic expression. Yeah, I mean, it feels like impossible for anyone. I, I agree that Lynch, it feels like an artist. He feels like somebody who is expressing something that only he can express in a way that only he can do it. And it's like, how can anyone give him notes on that? Like, how can (laughs) someone, you know, a lot of times like notes are helpful and they are like, what are you trying to say? And you try to like massage something and figure something out. But it's like, he's the one who does that. He does that all himself. And if he needs help, I'm sure he asks for it. Yeah. So it's funny. I am a Dune. I am a Dune. uh, What do we call him? Apologist. Dune Dune apologist. (laughs) Dune truther. (laughs) Dune is good. I think. (laughs) Do you prefer the director's cut, the longer version, or do you prefer the theatrical one? I've only seen the director's cut. I think I watched it like part of it on TV or whatever the longer one is. Um, Mm. Is that the one that has like Alan Smithy credited as the the director? I watched a little bit. I've only seen that a little bit on TV once. I stumbled across it. But I like the original one. I think is just like, look, it's crazy and weird and maybe not. And I could never recommend it to a person to watch. (laughs) But I think it's like really interesting and... I bet you the new one, the uh, the one that's coming out next year with Chalamet in it, is gonna yeah. like rip off a lot of it. I think. I, I think you're right, and I, I I struggle with Dune. I think that there's a lot of interesting stuff in it. I mm-hmm. think that all of the Lynch things that feel like David Lynch, I'm I'm on board with, yes. and there is a lot of it. But there are, are there are also parts of it where you're like, ah, this is clearly someone like sticking their fingers in the pie and being like, all right, we're going to swirl this up a little bit. And um, I, I think that I wouldn't call it bad. Certainly not. I think there's enough good stuff in it that um, it's it's pretty good. But just compared to some of his other work, I just I don't know how often I would revisit it instead of one of his other movies. Yes. It's also like a movie that's like a little bit more fun to talk about than to watch. Yeah. <laughs> or to like pick out like individual parts of it. Like the opening with like the big like pink worm yeah. in the glass aquarium thing that then like has like a vagina for a mouth. <laughs> like that is awesome. It's, it, there is a lot of fun. I mean, Sting. Sting is fun Sting to talk is about great. in that movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I always forget that Sting is in it. He sure is. There's so much great stuff in it. But then, like, you also are like, there's so much insanity. Uh, and, and it's so fascinating that Dune then leads it, Dune leads into Blue Velvet and is the same producer. It's Dino De Laurentiis. So, yeah. like, even with that experience, like, that same producer was like, look, we can't give you a lot of money, but I think you're great and we'll do your weird thing. <laughs> hey, you got to respect it. <laughs> 
the way that David casts his movies, I also think is pretty interesting. It's less about like, here, read the script that I've already developed, and more about like, how are our vibes going to mesh here on set? Kyle MacLachlan had been in the Dune adaptation, but David said that he's enamored with Kyle MacLachlan's ability to, quote, play innocents who are interested in the mysteries of life. He's the person you trust enough to go into a strange world with. And I really think that that's a great description of him. I think it, it goes through with Twin Peaks as well, where you're like, he's a great person to have things explained to. And like, he feels naturally curious in a way that helps us as an audience to not feel like we're being expositioned at. Yeah. McLaughlin is so good. Yeah. He is a, so awesome. He's awesome. Yeah. yeah I, I, even in Dune, I think he's really, he's one of the best parts of Dune for me is, is his, uh, his role in there. So yeah, he also always has like great hair in his movie. I really, <laughs> I've realized this as I've gotten older and I've watched my hairline change where I'm like, his hair is great in Dune. His hair is great in blue velvet. Oh yeah. Uh, his hair is great in Portlandia and Twin Peaks, the return. You're like, <laughs> he's got like three different hairdos and they're all good. <laughs> they're Hamlet 2000. He's got good hair. In that <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's great. The role, though, originally had been offered to Val Kilmer, which I think would have been really interesting. Oh, I've never heard that. That's, that is interesting. Yeah, he he read an earlier script, though, and he declared it pornography. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> um, Chris Isaac was also up for this role, but didn't get it, obviously. Um, but he did wind up being excellent in Firewalk with me for Lynch. Yeah, so. yeah he's great as in kind of playing a Kyle McLaughlin type role in that too is like the FBI agent. Right. He's the, like the mirror image of, uh, of Coop. So yeah. Yeah. Isabella Rossellini. She plays uh, Dorothy Valens in this. And at the time she was a model who had gotten some heat for her early eighties Lancome ads. Uh, plus she was a dynasty. She was the daughter of Ingrid Bergman and Roberto Rossellini. And she really has to do a lot of the heavy emotional lifting in this movie. And she just knocks it out of the park for my money. I mean, she just does so like so much of, of our emotional roller coaster of this movie is hinged upon the way that she is portraying this character. And I mean, it's just incredible. Yeah. She's awesome. There's so many scenes in this movie where something usually during the most like dramatic parts of the movie where like the most intense stuff is happening it's like her in the middle on screen a lot of times she's naked yeah um and having to say you know lines that i think like any actor would maybe be like very nervous to say but you know i guess willing to trust you know that this was going to turn out and be worth it and yeah she's awesome she is i mean her agency dropped her during test screenings <laughs> and uh when the nuns at the school that she attended as a child uh saw the movie they called her to say they were praying for her so <laughs> <laughs> interestingly her role was originally offered to debbie harry but after videodrome she was tired of playing quote the weirdo which let me tell you debbie i don't think dorothy is the weirdo in this script <laughs> <laughs> Oh, whoa. Interesting. Laura Dern was cast after several actresses, including Molly Ringwald, turned it down. And Michael Ironside, Harry Dean Stanton, and Stephen Burkoff all turned down the role of Frank uh, because of the violence, primarily, with Burkoff going so far as to say, there is nothing in that role but destruction. <laughs> Which, I mean, a, a good zing, I guess. But they got through this and they were having trouble finding someone before Dennis Hopper went up to Lynch and he said, I've got to play Frank. I am Frank, which uh, maybe not something you should go around telling people, frankly, <laughs> that, Dennis. 
is the funniest. That makes me laugh so hard. That's I had seen that. I think that in the Blu-ray I have, there's like interviews with everyone, and he tells that Dennis Hopper tells that story, and it is so funny. This role to be like that is me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a it's a weird a weird thing to truly identify with, but. I mean, also knocks it out of the park. So I guess, you know, he's bringing that honesty to it. Robert Loja also wanted this role. And you can hear all about how David made it up to him in our Lost Highway episode of the best little horror house in Philly. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, cool. Um, A fun fact that I saw is that the word fuck is used 56 times and all but once by Frank Booth. (laughs) And the the 56th the 56th time is at his direction when uh, he makes the singing guy. uh, I forget his name, but the uh, Dan, maybe they go to his apartment. They like toast that. Yeah. What is that? Yeah. He he says, say fuck. And he says, fuck. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Another fun fact is that Dennis Hopper has played seven unrelated characters named Frank throughout his filmography. Really? Oh, whoa. <laughs> yeah. I uh, saw that. Didn't I was like, there's no way that that's true. And I went and looked. I combed through and Palermo shooting straight shooter. Meet the Deedles. The night we called it a day. The last days of Frankie the fly blue velvet and public defender. That's seven Frankies. <laughs> The drop off. I was like, when you started listing Dennis Hopper movies, I was like, okay, surely I will have heard of some of these movies. <laughs> and then the drop off from Blue Velvet to the maybe Meet the Deedles was that one of them. I think I've heard yeah. of that. The other ones, I was like, <laughs> Dennis, he he took a lot of choices. We'll see. Yeah, he did. <laughs> They started shooting in Wilmington, North Carolina in August of 85. They did eventually lose the ability to film in public after a whole bunch of townspeople gathered around to watch them shoot. And they were like, oh, we'll make a day of it. Grab your picnic baskets and blankets. And Lynch was like, please don't hang out here. <laughs> and they ignored him. And so they went along. They went ahead and they filmed the scene where Dorothy staggers down the street. And by the time that David said cut, Everyone had vanished, and the cops came to pull his permits. (laughs) So they weren't allowed to film in public after that. But nevertheless, they got the filming done, and then some, with his rough cut running for four hours. (laughs) Like, I mean, I've said it before. I'm usually so reluctant to invest in a movie that's like three hours or, or, or more, but... Man, if David Lynch was like, here's a four-hour cut of Blue Velvet, I think right. I would take him up on it. <laughs> it would be really interesting. Like the Twin Peak, like Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me has like a whole two-hour like deleted scenes thing he edited together. Yeah. That is like really interesting. It's great. I also recommend to people, if you can find it, there is a version with the missing pieces edited back into Fire Walk With Me. Oh. And cool. it... Boy, it's just so good. I, I, there's a lot of stuff in the missing pieces that is just like heartbreaking that <laughs> it got pulled because it's so so good. But you know, it is what it is. I guess. Um, yeah. His contractual obligation was to deliver a two-hour movie, and so he cut a bunch of smaller subplots and character scenes, uh, along with some violence cuts from the MPAA. Although Lynch was like everything that they made me take out, like it's like the image of the hand hitting Dorothy or whatever when when he goes to slap her, the imagined violence of not actually seeing it made it much more disturbing to him than actually seeing it. And I think that that is pretty frequently the case in that imagined violence is more upsetting than seeing it actually uh, take place because 
you know, the imagination is a powerful thing. Yes. But uh, in addition to the cast featuring several Lynch staples before they had become that, uh, the content does as well. Uh, you know, you've got this seedy underbelly of a white bread American town, dreamlike surrealist moments, red curtains, voyeurism, you know, all the Lynch classics mm-hmm. right there. <laughs> um, but as I alluded to in my initial description of this movie, in addition to the surrealist horror elements in it, it also draws a lot from noir stories with a heavy emphasis on like the femme fatale and the questionable morals of our protagonist. And I think that it's a really great combination of that noir sort of sub subgenre that I really love as well with that Lynch surrealism and sort of exploration of the dark side of humanity and everything. So they fit together. Great. Oh yeah. I love the term. I think you said it earlier. Horror noir is that I hadn't thought about that as like the genre of this movie, but like that I made it up. That's what I like. Not it. A I real love it. <laughs> it should be, it's you. It's good. It should be a, there should be more entries in that. Genre. I'm wondering what the other genre entries in that are. Hell yeah. Look, if you know out there, let us know if you have found any horror noirs out there. <laughs> um, but so the movie opened in 98 theaters around the U.S. on September 19th, 1986, grossing just 900 or excuse me, 790,000 over opening weekend. The reception, which I'll get to in a second, though, was so wild that it expanded to 113 theaters and wound up getting to eight and a half million dollars uh, over its entire run. And this, I mean, this reception was crazy, not just from critics. There were lines around the block in New York and L.A., mass walkouts, a guy fainted in Chicago and had to have his pacemaker changed. And then he came back and saw the ending of the movie, like just all the the like fun, like ah, people are fainting and vomiting in the theater and everything. Like, it's so funny to me that. It's stuff like Exorcist and also like Blue Velvet, where it's yeah. so much more grounded. I just think that it's a it's it's a really funny thing, and I, yeah, I get I love, it. Though. Yeah, <laughs> it's so it is so cool that this movie connected with like an audience. This became like a thing. It became a like a bit of a pop culture thing to go you know for Blue Velvet, and it hit it at that moment. I I love that. I love that that is like part of Lynch's talent. I think to kind of connect with and a pretty sizable audience with this like weird stuff. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, but it did also received heated but mixed reviews in both directions. Um, positive reviews included the New York Times critic uh, Janet Maslin, whose review I loved. I thought that she did a great job. She said, Mr. Hopper and Miss Rossellini are so far outside the bounds of ordinary acting here that their performances are best understood in terms of sheer lack of inhibition. Both give themselves entirely over to the material, and that as fascinating as it is freakish, Blue Velvet confirms Mr. Lynch's stature as an innovator, a superb technician, and someone best not encountered in a dark alley. Great review, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> and then on the other side, longtime listeners had to know this was coming, but in walks best little horror house villain, Roger Ebert. <laughs> <laughs> Roger loved Isabella Rossellini's performance. He called it convincing and courageous, but he described the movie as cruelly unfair to its actors because of what he decided was David Lynch's misogyny in asking Rosalini to be quote undressed and humiliated on screen as few actresses have before outside of porno roles and turning it into a joke. And he went on to claim that the scene, uh, the the scene where she does stagger down the street uh, exists simply to cause pain for Isabella Rosalini and that it, it doesn't fit in a movie that has any humor. However, Isabella responded to this and said, uh, she was surprised. She was surprised at Ebert's reaction because, quote, 
I'm an adult. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good response. Yeah, I mean, I'm curious what you think about this turn, like his thoughts of like, you're not allowed to have something as emotionally strenuous in a movie that also has stuff like uh, the call letters being wood for the radio yeah. station. Like for someone to be like a movie critic and not understand that these two things can exist simultaneously, it just feels so bizarre to me. Right. And it's also like somebody like applying rules that you would, I, you know, I would bet that there's not a lot of people that can pull off that movie that has those two things. And you'd fall flat on your face, but like someone like David Lynch, who is such a good writer and director and like just has such a clear vision that he can't like, maybe that is a good note for most people, (laughs) but like for him, he's like, he can execute that and make it interesting and make it not feel like exploitive or you know, like it's targeting the, the, the actress or, yeah. or whatever. It's it's a funny watch to see the episode of Siskel and Ebert where they're talking about this movie because Siskel really liked it. And they, I mean, people know that they were not especially the best of friends. Yeah. <laughs> so to see them sort of sniping at each other over this movie is, is very satisfying. <laughs> but, oh, I love that. That's so great. <laughs> but David was nominated for a Best Director Academy Award. Uh, he did lose to Oliver Stone for Platoon. But that said, Blue Velvet's legacy has continued to grow, not only serving as an inspiration for dozens of parodies, imitations, homages, uh, also being cited by various sources as one of the greatest films of surrealism, Lynch's filmography, the 1980s, American cinema overall, and now the best horror movie ever made. There it is. (laughs) There it is, gang. (laughs) All right, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back to the show. As we leave 2020 in the rear view and head into 2021, I think we've all earned a resolution to treat ourselves. And nothing says treat like Tuckins, the inside out, all in one s'more. With a crunchy handmade graham cracker covered in decadent chocolate and wrapped inside a fluffy marshmallow on a stick, it'll be love at first taste. And there's all kinds of great flavors that you can mix and match, including original, cookies and cream, peanut butter cup, and even some rad seasonal flavors. Plus, unlike a regular s'more, Tuckins can easily be roasted indoors or out, over the fireplace, the fire pit, even the stovetop will do the trick. And they stay delicious for up to three months in the freezer. So head to Tuckins.com and use the offer code BEST20 to get a whopping 20% off your order, while also letting Tuckins know you heard about them from the Best Little Horror House. That's T-U-C-K-I-N-S.com and BEST20 for 20% off. So make the new year a sweet one with the No Mess Inside Out S'more. And now, back to the show. To get into the actual plot of the movie, the opening credits roll over some like swaying blue velvet curtains, and it's, it's very classy, but it also really draws you in, you know, creates this sort of barrier between you and the movie and it's like no you gotta wait you gotta get through these credits you don't get to see what's on the other side just yet i think it does a really good job of drawing you in yeah i love that image i love those titles at the beginning of it the velvet like i don't know if you like see velvet or like on screen a lot so it seems like such a strange substance that's like moving and it has that kind of it has that kind of like storybook feel that like like, oh, this is about to be a play or a fairy tale or something like that but like a weird twist on that it's very cool. And I, I think when I first saw this movie, I first saw it when I was like a teenager and I watched a V, I'm sure I watched a VHS that I rented from Blockbuster. And now to watch it and like, you know, you can watch it on like a Blu-ray and it looks so nice and so oh, clear yeah. and you see that and you're like, ooh. Especially when the Blu-ray is put out by the Criterion Collection and like they put so much care into making sure that it's restored correctly and everything that it really just looks spectacular. I, I have the Blu-ray as well and 
watching it on there, it's just everything is so vivid. The blues are so deep and the roses are so red and it's just it's yeah. gorgeous. Yeah, the the photography in the movie and just like everything, the production design, it's it's all so great and it really does pop and like the to watch it just on a TV at home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> When the movie proper starts, though, they're already working overtime to create the feeling of Reagan's wet dream suburbs. I mean, the camera pans down from a gorgeous blue sky, reveals a white picket fence and these bright red roses while Blue Velvet plays. A fire truck rolls past with a waving firefighter and a Dalmatian (laughs) on it. Kids walk past a crossing guard who's like, all right, let's go. Just really hammering it home. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really funny. I love the firefighter. I love how those <laughs> images also come back at the end. Yeah, so. yeah. The firefighter waving is really, it's a nice one. <laughs> and he's got a dog too. He's holding a dog. A dog is also Hell yeah. sitting on his fire truck. But we also see a guy watering his flowers and the hose has a kink in it. The pressure is building and building and building and it needs a release. Uh, And so too do the repressed suburbanites in Lumberton, North Carolina. Lumberton, I knew it was filmed in um, uh, Wilmington. And I was like, I went to college in North Carolina. So I know North Carolina as a state, I'm from the South. So I know North Carolina as a state like decently well. And I was like wondering, I was like, is this, is Lumberton in North Carolina? And I guess it is, but I'm like, that's so interesting. Cause like, I don't know if it's referenced specifically in the movie and obviously like, People don't have Southern accents, but I'm Wilmington does have that kind of like nice feel like this, you know? Yeah, I think it's interesting too. like we were talking about. It follows, you know, this doesn't really nail down like a time period. It it feels like a throwback, but also like, you know, it could take place anywhere between like 1950 and the present day. And but you're right that they don't have the Southern accents. So could be Lumbertown, USA. Right. It, yeah. It almost has like the same feel as like, well, Twin Peaks is like kind of like very consciously like Pacific Northwest. Yeah. And like it has a lot of that same Twin Peaks stuff, like talking about lumber and like the, the lumber industry is obviously big there and like some other kind of flashes like that. That's interesting about like the time period too, because like Kyle McLaughlin drives like that cool car that's like, yeah, definitely not like an eight. I know. Uh, it's definitely not like an 80s sedan. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's like a classic convertible. It's, mm-hmm. It's a really nice car. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it, it, that was something I noticed that it didn't, that didn't really occur to me the first time I was watching it, but going back and seeing it be like this nebulous time period that it takes place in helps to make it continue feeling relevant. Yes, it does. It doesn't feel like a dated movie to watch it now, except yeah. in like good, interesting ways. Like- right. Suddenly, though, the man who was watering his plants collapses and he rolls around in the mud. Again, it's very like you're going to have to keep up. Everything is something <laughs> like he's rolling in the mud. He's getting dirty. Like he gets like that. He falls under that. There's like those rope. There's like little strings on the for something on the ground. Yeah. And he's like, follow it. I always like that is so upsetting to me. Him twitching on the ground and like falling under this kind of little rope and the rope on his head. And it's, yeah, like, I think it's like a clothesline or something. Yes. It's a uh, it's. It's a great image, but it is pretty upsetting as he like lies there twitching and the dog like comes up to drink the water. The baby, the baby too also wanders up. <laughs> um, as he lays on the grass, though, we go deeper and deeper and deeper until we see this like writhing colony of bugs in the ground. It's a frantic mess of disgustingness roiling underneath the glossy surface of this suburb. <laughs> So again, very, I mean, it's, it doesn't feel fair to be like it's on the nose, but it is like, 
a well-communicated metaphor. It's like, I understand very clearly what they're trying to say here with this, like these bugs sort of rolling around under there. Yeah. It is funny how like obvious it is. And like, you kind of aren't, I'm not sure how to feel. Like, I think the first time I saw that, I'm like, I was probably like put off by how obvious it was. But then it also like works and it's like, I don't know. It's just part of the whole thing. Yeah. I think it does work because if you don't have that understanding of like what the thematics of the movie are going to be, then I don't think anything that follows is going to work. And him being like, do you get it? Everyone I think is like necessary to bring everyone along for the rest of the ride. Um, So, so I, I definitely agree that it, could turn someone off to have this like metaphor sort of like presented to them in this way. But you know, I I think it does work. And it turns out that that was Mr. Beaumont having a stroke and his son, Jeffrey returns home from college to visit. That's Kyle McLaughlin and walking home from the hospital. Well, so first of all, in the hospital, pretty upsetting scene as well. (laughs) Like the dad can't talk and he's like trying to, but his mouth is all like swollen and his tongue is like, ugh. And he's got like that big, like kind of spinal thing, like mounted on his head. It's yeah. yeah. (laughs) But so Jeffrey goes to walk home from the hospital and he cuts through this vacant lot and he discovers a severed human ear. It's grody. Ants are swarming it and everything. And he takes this ear to detective John Williams. I love when he's like, you found a human ear. And then he looks in the bag and like on his face too. He's like, wow, you found a human ear. <laughs> that, he says something like, that is a human ear. Like yeah. that act, the choices right there are so interesting with that actor, like kind of smiling at Kyle McLaughlin and like kind of having, I don't know, you almost like think like he's like, oh, this kid is telling me a little story. Yeah. But it, it is just that kind of like choice that's like kind of interesting and like gets you like into the scene. You're like, okay, what's everyone's like, what's the dynamic here? And it's, it's, kind of grounded but also like a little elevated and just yeah i love i love that (laughs) yeah i think that they do a really good job of sort of he's thrown into this story the same way that we are kyle mclaughlin is put into stuff that's already happening you know dorothy valens is long into this relationship with frank booth and her husband and everything and the same way that we are sort of just dropped into the middle of it so is he and uh and I think that that really helps to sort of feed that surrealist uh, feeling that David sort of brings to it. Yeah, totally. And it also kind of made me think when I was watching it that I was like, oh, this really does, starting off with like this young character, like stumbling into this thing, made me, reminded me of horror movies. Like, you know, young protagonist who kind of gets like caught up in like either facing a monster or like a killer or like just something other horrible like that, you know, even though Blue Velvet isn't a conventional horror movie, like it is kind of starting from that same trope which I thought was interesting. I totally agree. While Jeff strolls around the neighborhood, an image of the ear fades up and we dive into the canal, which I think is really great. Again, sort of being like, we're in it, folks. We've reached, like we've seen the entryway into this hidden world and we're, we're diving in. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it's awesome. And the shot just looks awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah. His walk ends up leading him to the the detective's house who tells him basically like, hush up. Man, don't tell anyone about this ear. Don't ask any more questions. We'll handle it. But he also becomes reacquainted with the detective's daughter, Sandy, which is Laura Dern. And she joins him on his walk back. And she starts to sort of feed him information that she hears from her father, which is that the ear somehow relates to a lounge singer named Dorothy Valens, who lives, I mean, 
on the wrong side of the tracks, basically. Like, it's very sort of separated from this wet dream suburbia that we were talking about. His his Jeffrey's aunt was literally like, you're not going down to Lincoln, are you? <laughs> <laughs> it's a shock to see this same sort of uh, run-down environment so close to the suburbs that is are clearly portrayed as, like, this idealized thing. Um, it's it's just a really great sort of dichotomy there. Yeah, I love that. And actually, I, I want to uh, just to jump back real quick. Sure. I, there's a there was a thing, you know, a great thing about this movie is that you can watch it and always see like new things. And I think I, I think that really made me laugh when I just watched it today was in that scene where he talks to the detective after they've found the ear, and the detective tells him, you know, we've got this. There's a really funny like there's like a really funny line in there where he goes like the detective is like describing stuff, and Kamagakan goes like. Oh wow! It must be like really interesting to be. How oh, it's so interesting to be a police detective. And the detective goes like, "Yeah, it is." And then there's like half a beat, and he goes, "But there's also a lot of darkness." Oh. <laughs> and Kamala oh. is like, "Oh," <laughs> and it's such a funny like it's almost like soap opera type like delivery. Yeah, that's very like Lynchy and very but very funny like a very funny joke too. And I can imagine David Lynch cackling at that. <laughs> yeah, the fact that he is like, yeah, it is cool to be a detective yeah. um especially because i do i do think that that really leads jeffrey sort of down the primrose path of being like yeah i'm gonna be a detective too like yeah the, the detective tells him like he sees a lot of himself in him and everything it's he's really set up to sort of follow in these footprints here. yeah but yeah so he, he's fascinated by this mystery that he's involved in and he's eager to learn more uh, and so Jeffrey picks Sandy up from school the next day to question her at a diner and explain his plan, which is to enter Dorothy's apartment by posing as an exterminator. I, I mean, I guess it's a pretty good plan. <laughs> the, it's really contingent on her being in like the rundown side of town. Yeah, so. <laughs> the plan is a lot. Also, part of the plan was that he that Laura Dern is going to play a uh, what does he tell her that she's a Jehovah's did? Witness. A He's Jehovah's like, I have Witness. some of the magazines for you. Yeah, and there's going to be a lot of like, you're just going to have to like improvise your way through this. <laughs> and Laura Dern's like, I don't know, but okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, she is really game for for being put in this situation. This, person, but... this guy, this handsome college guy, he she just met, just ran into again. And so yeah, they put this plan into action, and it's it's I love the camera moving up the stairs in front of Jeffrey as he walks up. I just think it's so well shot there. Yes, I love that. The stairs is interesting. I I was like, it feels like there's something, I don't know what it is. I feel like the stairs, there's so many shots throughout the movie of like him going, when he's going to that apartment mm-hmm. or when characters are going to that apartment, being on the stairs and going up it that I, it kind of starts to have a feeling about like going into like a bad place. And it, it feels like a choice to me. It feels like a Lynch choice to make the stairs, the, to build that set, to have, you know, shoot him, shoot characters going up it, to make it a bit of a thing and about how we get into the apartment every time, which I just thought was interesting. And I don't know what it is exactly. Yeah, it, it is interesting. I think that it does sort of create this like deliberate choice. It's not just something that they like walk to, like just they their feet just take them there. You have to decide to go up to this apartment and you do sort of get the mirror images of him and Frank uh, are both a lot of the times the ones who are shot on the stairwell there. And so much of this is about him feeling like he's becoming like Frank and trying to pull away from that darkness that having those mirror shots, uh, I think, does a really great job of even subconsciously sort of reinforcing that comparison. Yeah, that's interesting. 
that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, yeah, and it's also just like so grimy. It's like so the every time he's in the stairwell, I'm like, oh, this is disgusting. Like, <laughs> it really is. It really contrasts with like the rest of this town we've seen. Yeah, of course the plan goes awry, <laughs> and he has to steal this spare key while she's distracted by a man in a yellow sport coat who he calls the Yellow Man because it's <laughs> just he just goes for it when they leave. He convinces Sandy to go with him to Dorothy's nightclub act. Again, I really love the camera here where it's just like sitting in the back seat of the car while they talk to each other. Mm. Um, it's like kind of pulled pretty far back from them, I feel like, where it could have just been like one and two shots where they go back and forth. And to have it be this lockdown in the background there, I just I really think it's a, a simple but great choice to to let us really absorb it. Yeah, yeah, that's a great scene. And it is like nice to see them both there and to see like you kind of like you find your eyes like going from one to the other as the conversation is going editing, basically editing yourself. Yeah. Um, and uh, as they enter the nightclub, we get some just kick ass Angelo Battlementi score. I mean, mm-hmm. they're they work together constantly, but he's really doing just standout work here in this movie. There's an interesting conversation where Jeff is talking about like loving Heineken. Yeah. And. I feel like it kind of reveals some more of their personality. Like I feel like he's searching for more than the suburbs have offered him thus far. Like he's going for an imported beer instead of the domestic Budweiser, like Sandy's dad would have, like she says. And even later when he's talking to um, Frank, Frank, (laughs) he's talking to Frank and he's, you know, he's like, what kind of beer do you like? And he's like, I like Heineken. And he's like, fuck that shit. Pops Blue Ribbon. <laughs> like, even. It's so funny. It's, first of all, yes, absolutely hilarious. It's great. It's delivered incredibly. It's a funny line. But also, it really, even compared to the domestic Bud Heavy, like, Pops Blue Ribbon is sort of like a low, quote unquote, low class, cheaper beer. Yes. And I really think that this, like, this choosing Heineken is like a, a deliberate, like I am a cool college guy and I'm breaking out of the suburbs by making simple choices like this. Yeah. Something European, something exotic. Right. You know, when I was in, I relate to this very personally. Cause when I was like a teenager, when I was like probably 18 or something and you know, we'd somehow be able to get beer or something to drink. I would, I got it in my head that we should this was with that, without even seeing, or I didn't connect this with Blue Velvet at all. I was like, we should get Heineken because it's like a cool adult beer. And maybe the the, ke- the cans are shaped like kegs. <laughs> and I remember being at a, someone's house and being like, we should get Heineken. And then it was like some like, you know, one of my dumb high school buddies who was like, what the fuck? <laughs> Fucking Heineken? Fuck that shit. Pass that, the ribbon. Yeah, that guy was, yeah, that guy was like a little mini prank. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely relate to that too. I think that, that is a relatable choice where you feel like, oh, I'm I'm getting to be older. I can drink now. You know, like I'm gonna start making classy choices and yeah. and this German import. You know, that's that's the beer for me. But Frank is much more aware of who he is. He's real. I feel like Frank has really accepted himself, and uh-huh. so his like, ah, I don't need 
I don't need that. I'm cool with just this low, like lowly domestic is, is fine with me. I, I do think that it's a, another sort of great comparison point between the two of them, uh, which, you know, happens so frequently. I wonder why, how like they even came up with Heineken as the right. It almost feels like if David Lynch, like, why didn't he just come up with like a fake <laughs> European sounding beer? Right. But he chose Heineken for some reason, which is a great specific. It almost, you know, the, the amount it gets mentioned in the movie, you're almost like, is this product placement? <laughs> but it, Heineken right? wishes. Yeah. <laughs> And it's so interesting. It's like an, it's an, another interesting choice where it does make sense. And it's like, well, or maybe it's, it, you know, he chooses that and then everyone hears Heineken and you immediately know what it is. You don't have to even like, whereas if he made up his own, you maybe have to explain that a little bit or. Right. No, could be a, could be a shitty foreign beer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so he, they go to this club. Uh, Dorothy sings the titular Blue Velvet and our two intrepid detectives leave early so that Jeffrey can break into her apartment. Sandy's going to honk four times when Dorothy arrives, but she also says, I don't know if you're a detective or a pervert. And honestly, I really feel like that sums things up pretty nicely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he looks around and he doesn't find much, but he does see an empty nursery. Both times he's been there, no kid. I think that this is a really like, you see this and you're like, oh, something is not right here. It, it does a great job of setting up that unease, but he also goes to pee. And the sound of the flush covers up the sound of Sandy's honks. <laughs> Another very funny moment in the movie. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very funny. Dorothy's on her way upstairs. He has to scramble to the closet when Dorothy comes home. And he sees her undress. She heads towards the closet, but she's interrupted by the ringing phone. A really great tension. So I did this build up and back down, build yeah. up and back down. The phone call is her begging someone named Frank, who we haven't seen thus far, to be able to talk to someone named Don, and she checks in on little Johnny <laughs> before, before uh, which, first of all, again, you know, Johnny, like, John, De, like, it's very sort of, like, the idealized American name sort of uh, suburbia thing again. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so uh, Frank cuts in again, and, and she hangs up before checking something under the couch, and there's another great shot here that I love where the camera is still from Jeff's perspective. So it's a super wide shot of the apartment as she walks around and, you know, she goes into the bathroom and she comes out, but having it be in the closet still in this super wide is, it really does a great job of putting you in Jeffrey's shoes of making you feel that voyeurism and like, Oh, like, could he make a break for it? Does he even want to? It's just so well done there. Yeah, I love it. And that's it. This is the moment where the movie starts to get like tense and scary. This is like, we're, we're starting to end in one of these sequences where I'm like, oh shit, where this makes me feel like it's a horror movie. Yeah, oh, absolutely. She hears a noise from the closet. He like, he like adjusts his weight and steps on something and there's a noise. And she grabs a knife before ambushing him. And... She forces him to undress and then starts to fillet him. <laughs> and eventually, like, I, I mean, it seems like it's leading to more before there's a knock at the door. And uh-oh, it's Frank and baby wants to fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Jeffrey scrambles back to the closet almost as quickly as I scrambled for the remote to turn down the volume so my neighbors don't call the cops on me during this scene. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so in rolls Frank Booth, the Frank we heard on the phone, and he is aggressive from minute one. But he also echoes some of what Dorothy had just been saying to Jeff, 
sort of creating this vision of the cycle of abuse that I think is really interesting. Yeah. He huffs something unspecified in the movie. In the original script, it's helium to help raise his voice and get him into his sexual role play. Oh. Uh, yeah, which, uh, that's fucked up. <laughs> but yeah. um, in the actual script that wound up, on Dennis Hopper's recommendation, it was changed to amyl nitrate, which is supposed to enhance sexual experiences. So, you know, it, it, I think it... Boy, if it was like helium and his voice like got high so that he could be like, I'm a baby, baby wants right. to fuck. Like, yes, that's insane. Super unsettling too, though. Like, oh man, would have been even more creepy and fucked up. But yeah, uh, it's still, still very effective and scary when he's pulls this out and he punches Dorothy in the face when she looks at him and she whispers, yes, you know, we she's grown to enjoy this domination and violent sex, and violent it is. Frank finishes dry humping her, and uh, he threatens her by saying, "You stay alive, baby," and he leaves. And we see that he's got her like trapped in this sexual bondage by having kidnapped her husband and son, and she feels guilty about her in grown enjoyment of this role that she's sort of accepted this masochistic aspect of her sexual proclivities and now she's like into this and she feels guilty about that because it's coming at the expense of her husband and child and i mean certainly i understand the guilt there mm-hmm. it's it's conflicting emotions for sure and it's interesting from Kyle McLaughlin's character's point of view and he's like kind of this he's like a college kid he's young he is like stumbled onto the most like adult situation imaginable like yeah. the most complicated like sexual like coercive thing like weird emote like he's just like watching this from a closet and it's thrown in the the deepest of deep ends immediately yeah in terms of being scared for his own life but also like trying to like figure out what's going on and why people are behaving this way yeah just parsing the situation is challenging enough and then he's also like ah man i have to get out of here still too so um it it really is unsettling for us it's a scary scene i I think it's really well done yeah in the script we learn that frank's kidnapping of don is related to the drug trafficking operation don was a dealer who tried to go clean and become a police informant and so his former traffickers called in frank as like an enforcer to stop him from doing this oh okay yeah so that's that's how they sort of meet i guess Gotcha. The, what is the opposite of a meat cute? <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so Jeff comforts her afterward, and she grabs him tightly. And, you know, maybe quarantine is starting to get to me. <laughs> I want to see where this is going. Yeah, I turned to my cat, and I said, do you think that that's an Odalesque pose to create a reference to Sleeping Venus from uh, Giorgione? <laughs> And I said it with such sincerity that I was, like, genuinely embarrassed afterward. George, I said the same thing. It's a Vicat. Thank you, Joe. Finally, someone. <laughs> Listen, maybe it's just a well-composed shot, but Lynch does have a history in painting. And, you know, Sleeping Venus from 1510, very famous painting. So it seems likely to me that he'd be aware of it. So... Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. She looks like it's like a, a really cool pose, though. Very sort of renaissance-y. Um, mm. it, it looks really good. And we get a classic Lynch super close up of her face. I mean, he loves really showing you the emotions play out. And uh, her whispers of feel me turn to hit me. 
um, again, sort of that that like adult situation where if I'm if I'm Jeff, I'm panicking in yes. that moment. <laughs> it's 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 a really crazy situation for him to be in, and Jeff sort of puts all this together, and he suspects that Frank cut off her husband's ear to warn her to stay alive for her family's sake, and he tells Sandy as much, but he doesn't tell her about his own sort of sexual tryst with uh, Dorothy. Sandy urges him to tell her dad, but Jeff is like, none of this would be admissible. <laughs> Like, we broke into her house <laughs> to, like, spy on her. What am I going to tell him? Like, we broke the law. And so he starts to feel overwhelmed. And he, like, breaks down and he cries and he asks Sandy why there are men like Frank and so much trouble in the world. And it would be really easy, I think, for this to feel, like, corny and really sort of take you out yes. of the movie. But because Kyle MacLachlan does have that innocence that he was talking about when he cast him, I think that it, this, this does really work. Yeah, you believe him. It doesn't feel like a, like a self-conscious performance. It feels like someone who's like, like, Kyle MacLachlan is this character and this is what he's feeling at that moment. And you just like, you buy it. It's great. Yeah. Very difficult, I think, to pull off. I mean, Laura Dern's doing a great job sort of playing off him as well. Uh, she tells him about this dream that she had where the world was dark because there weren't any Robins anymore, and the Robins represented love. And this calls back to Frank extinguishing the flame in Dorothy's apartment and saying, now it's dark. There's no love there. There's not familial love anymore. There's not romantic love, just lust and abuse. Now it's dark just i mean lynch oh. everything is something man everything is something yeah yeah and jeffrey sees frank while he's attending dorothy's show and he follows him after and he finds his apartment and uses this knowledge to continue tailing him and in his observations he sees frank drug dealing and meeting with the yellow man and he tells sandy all this and that he's seeing something that was always hidden in this town and that he loves the mystery of it all. Mm -hmm. And that sort of like endorphin rush that he's feeling that's leading him down this path. I think it's leading him into danger, but that's what he's enjoying of it. The same way that Dorothy is sort of enjoying the thrill of this masochistic relationship that she's in. It's, it's just really, they, there are so many parallels with all the characters and like their comparison points. That I, I just think it's incredible that they're able to balance it all. Yeah. Um, I love, yeah, this part of the movie is so good. I love when he is watching Dennis Hopper and the Yellow Man, and it, we reveal he's like built like a camera. Yeah. Like he's built like this like hidden camera out of a shoebox that the has like, a little, like, yeah, that he, like, he has a little like, like button that he presses and it goes like, which I guess he built using his. Because he works at a hardware store and he has access to, he used his hardware store supplies, sure. I guess. Um, <laughs> so Famous so for being able to build cameras from hardware store equipment, so. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, that almost feels like, that it, that almost feels like uh, like a Hollywood executive note being like, but how does he build the camera? <laughs> how does he know to do this? And then Lynch is like, he works at a hardware store. Don't worry about it. No, yeah. <laughs> Jeffrey continues to see Dorothy and Sandy, and his relationship with Dorothy escalates as she encourages him to sort of hit her and be uh, sadomasochistic. And 
we see the, literally, we literally see the flame start to dim when he starts talking about helping her. But when she shoves him away and he slaps her, the fire roars to life. And it it's it's so in, like there's so much of this like the darkness and the light and the roaring passion and everything the light of the flame is not necessarily good like it, it, even though they're talking about now it's dark you know it, there it, it, you really have to be like man i'm can i'm as conflicted as everyone else is in this movie like jeffrey is in this consenting relationship with dorothy she is into it, but he still is really reluctant to do it and sort of even allow himself to reach that point mm-hmm. that, you know, it's, it's this, it, it, that's conflicting him, this sort of playing around with um, Sandy and seeing Dorothy behind her back. Like there's just so much duplicity that is also covered up the same way that there is sort of this glossy exterior and, and all the bugs and filth and everything underneath. He, he, he's the town and the town is him. And he's also Frank and yeah, it's all working together, baby. It's it's a nightmare. He's in a nightmare right now. And like, it doesn't make sense. You know, you think, you know, which way's up, but you don't. And that's frustrating. That makes you even more frustrated. It's yeah. When Frank catches Jeffrey leaving Dorothy's apartment, he abducts them with the help of his crew. And I got to say, what a gang. Love the crew. (laughs) Brad Dorif and Jack Nance. Holy (laughs) crap. (laughs) He brings them to Ben, who is also a member of his group. That was the guy uh, whose name I couldn't remember. I said Dan. (laughs) It's Ben. (laughs) Close. Close. Uh, And he's the one who's holding Dorothy's husband and son. And he also sends Raymond for beer. And this is where we see that dynamic again, where Jeff asks for Heineken and Frank explodes with the fuck that shit, Paps Blue Ribbon. And I really love the scene with Ben. Yes. Uh, I, I love Frank just yelling about how suave he is. But Frank says something here that I think really nails down his character, where he punches Jeff to make him toast Ben and then says, see, I can make him do anything I please. And you just sort of understand how far his fetishization of power has gone. It's not just sexual anymore, although, you know, who knows what he's getting out of hitting Jeffrey here. But it's just, it's all about power for him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This, this is, uh, this is really where in the thick of the movie. And this is like, this feels, this is like, once he, once uh, Kyle McLaughlin gets like grabbed by Dennis Hopper and those guys, like that's where we're in like the scary part of the movie because they're so scary. They go to this weird place. I love the di- like. I think that line is great. I love all the dialogue in that scene where he keeps talking. Like he said, like he keeps talking about how suave uh, Ben is. <laughs> God damn, he's suave. <laughs> yeah, he's so suave. <laughs> there's like the song. Like there's so much. They, it, uh, and then there's also like. I guess Ben, I guess those are, are those prostitutes? Is it, or maybe they're just kind of there hanging out. Like maybe they're prostitutes. Yeah. These other characters in the background, like not reacting to what's going on. It's all like, it feels terrifying. You're like, if you were in Jeffrey's shoes, you'd be like, this is insane. Oh my God. What the fuck is going to happen to me? (laughs) If you dropped like freshman year, me, into this situation i don't even know like what would i probably would have just dropped dead like 10 minutes ago like i would have been so scared in this moment um and it really is frightening because it's it feels like another world for him Mm -hmm. 
it feels like he's truly lost. He doesn't, he has no clue where he is. He's being pulled along by this group. It's, it's really scary. Like you said, this is like the frightening part of the movie for me, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. And this is the only scene I, for some reason I was like, Oh, I thought Ben was in it more in the movie more, but he's only in this scene. I think I right? wish, I wish he was in more. <laughs> he's so suave. He's um, so suave. <laughs> he's got that. I always like look at, he's got that guy with a weird earring. That's like yeah. kind of halfway. It's maybe not even an earring. It might just be like a clamp around like part of his earlobe. It's great. Yeah. You're killing it, Ben. <laughs> but Frank permits Dorothy to go see her family, and he forces Jeffrey to watch Ben perform an impromptu lip sync of Roy Orbison's In Dreams, which sort of you see these emotions cross Frank's face and emotions are weakness. Mm-hmm. And so he has like a bit of a breakdown here and he heads back out with Jeff and Dorothy in tow and they they like pull over into a field and Frank stares deep into Jeff and says you're like me, which first of all, not something that would be nice to hear, period. But it's especially like, this is Jeffrey's fear. He is so scared of becoming like Frank. That's why he's crying in his bed and everything. You know, for that sort of like confirmation for Frank himself to see himself in Jeffrey, what like what a powerful moment in in terms of like self-actualization. Yeah, yeah. Also, just to, for like Frank to be like, you're like me. And you're like, no, I'm not. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, especially when he has this sort of power over you in this moment, like you don't want to be like, ah, fuck you. I'm not anything like you. Like you're a piece of shit. <laughs> like, yeah. You don't want to sort of uh, stir the pot, mm-hmm. but but you also don't want to just like sit there and accept that. So Frank starts getting rough with Dorothy in the car. And Jeffrey tells him to stop and then clocks him in the face. And I, you must respect this effort. <laughs> like, good for you, Jeffrey. A foolish choice, perhaps. But, I mean, he, he goes for it. And, unfortunately, it doesn't do much. <laughs> so, the goons drag Jeffrey out, where Frank smears lipstick on himself. And one of the prostitutes, I, assume, I think that they are prostitutes. I think that Ben is, like, running a brothel. Yes, that's what, that's what I suspect, too, yeah. Um, and she, like, gets out and starts dancing on the roof to in dreams again. Yeah. And when Frank, like speaks the lyrics of in dreams to jeffrey yeah and then like violently kisses him it really like shakes me to my it's just core. like nightmare it's nightmare stuff yeah it really is and uh then he beats him unconscious to the sounds of in dreams <laughs> and uh, the fire goes out now it's dark you know it's it's all coming back and Jeffrey awakens the next morning, bruised and bloodied and embarrassing or and embarrassed, uh, you know, about sort of letting Dorothy get battered and himself as well. And so he visits the police station and realizes that Sandy, like he's going there to tell Sandy's father. But on his way there, he realizes that Sandy's father's partner is the yellow man who has been murdering Frank's rival drug dealers and stealing the confiscated narcotics for Frank to sell. And, he does tell Sandy's father and he tries to go back to a normal life. Now he's the one watering the flowers and sort of this mirror image of his father at the beginning, but he's got sunglasses on ostensibly to cover the bruises. But really we see that he's putting on these blinders to the seedy underbelly that he and we know is literally just around the corner. So it's just a, just a nice scene there. And he, he's still seeing Sandy. And so they go to attend a party 
and they're pursued by a car, which they assume belongs to Frank, but it turns out to be her boyfriend, Mike. And it's funny, but also like kind of sad to me that now that they've been exposed to this other side, they've kind of like got this fear in them. It's like a seed of fear that just grows and grows and grows. And you know, this high school boy like scares the shit out of them because their, their environment that they put themselves in has them. So on edge, I, I think that that's a, it's, it's a great, great moment, but yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I, then I, the, cause we haven't seen much of the boy. We've heard Lord Dern has mentioned the boyfriend a few times and we saw him like briefly, but like really haven't had any interaction with him and, Right. And to see him hop out of the car and be like, get, get out of it. I'm going to beat the shit out of you. <laughs> yeah. And it feels very childish, especially mm-hmm. when the next moment is Dorothy appearing <clears throat> on Jeffrey's porch naked and beaten and confused. And again, we're like, wow, this is an adult situation. Like, how do you handle this appearance of this woman here who's clearly gone through some trauma and needs help? Where like what do you do? Am I responsible enough to be the one who is going through this? It, it Mike even is like, oh, I'm getting out of here. Yes, <laughs> like, that guy immediately. That guy switched to being like he he says I, the line goes, "Is that your mom?" And then like there's a moment where like it kind of gets real. And he's like, "I'm I'm really sorry." <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it's it's a great sort of correlation there and sandy whisks dorothy to her house to summon medical attention oh real, let me just say one other thing Th- this part of the movie when isabella rossellini shows up and interrupts that i think is like an amazing the staging of that shot is amazing where yeah. the boyfriend is out there yelling at kyle mclaughlin and you don't even see isabella rossellini enter the shot he moves and she's suddenly behind him naked and it's like startling yeah it's like a ghost coming out or like a haunted it almost feels like a haunted house thing and it's Every time, every time I watch it, I forget she's like, I'm like, oh shit, there she is. <laughs> she's here already. She's already, we don't cut to her. Like she's already in the shot and you don't even kind of realize it until it's amazing. That's, it's, it's amazing. That's an amazing moment. Yeah. Especially because they're clearly trying to leave that part of their life behind. Mm-hmm. And so for her to just suddenly appear, like this sort of thing can come back and haunt you at any moment. Like, you know, they're burying this trauma, but it can flare up at any point and yeah. Uh, I think that Dorothy is is really a prime example of that. And Dorothy, in her sort of discussion with Jeffrey, while she's not in her right frame of mind, uh, refers to him as her secret lover. Yeah. And he put his poison in me. <laughs> <laughs> this is the other terrifying moment for Kyle's character. Because his two timing ways are being exposed. Exactly. And you're, like, you're like, oh, no. <laughs> And it's so funny that they like, you do get that like, oh shit, the, ch- the chickens are coming home to roost. But like, there's so much more important stuff happening yeah. that like <laughs> this again, you're just like, oh, oh shit. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But Sandy is distraught and she slaps him for lying to her. But Jeffrey asks Sandy to tell her father everything. And he returns alone to Dorothy's apartment where he discovers her husband dead and the yellow man like basically dead, but he's standing there like mortally wounded and seeing him is super unsettling. Mm -hmm. Just standing there, blood pouring from his head. Like the fact that he's even still up, man, it just really unsettles me bad. Yes. It feels again, very dreamlike, like where you're like, is he alive? No, he's dead. Why? What is it's yeah. Again, that, that dreamlike, that surrealism, it does help to keep you off balance. And, 
to feel like he's entered another world and and you know he can't really know what to expect just like we can so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. he remembers that frank has a police radio in his car and so he uses the yellow man's walkie-talkie to lie about his precise location within the apartment uh, and he says that he's in the bedroom and instead goes back into the closet the he, he returns there um and he hides out and Frank arrives and he he looks around and he has this gun. He shoots into the bedroom a couple times, despite the fact that that uh, Jeffrey's not there. Um, but when he uh, is, goes around looking for him, he he goes to open the closet and Jeffrey ambushes him. He had grabbed the yellow man's gun and he shoots him in the head. And it's a really great, really great shot as like the yeah. it's slow-mo the like explosion of the squib <laughs> yeah. like flies back it's great yeah it, it looks really good and then we pull back out from an ear this time jeffrey's in a, another mirror of the beginning where we we've had we've killed him we've made our escape from this this dream world this hell that he's uh, been put into and so we pull back out from an ear and there's even a Robin, like from the dream, mm-hmm. that's killed a bug. It's mm-hmm. a beetle, and so again, very like you know, it's it's all very laid out for you. This was made from an actual dead Robin that the props department found on the street. So that's oh, we, gross and weird, but <laughs> it does have that like weird. It's a, such a funny like little. It has like you can clearly tell it's like a puppet or it's fake or something like that. So, yeah, but yeah, there's just more mirror imagery that follows as we sort of bookend the story. You know, the the fire truck goes through and the fireman waves and the dog barks and it's it's this time Jeffrey and Sandy have their relationship and Dorothy is reunited with her son and it's just such a wonderful closure moment for this. Like they've been through so much and for the final moment to be her with her, with her child that has been sort of in the background, uh, the sort of inciting incident of this entire thing. I just think it's a, it's a really great ending. Yeah. And the kid has a propeller hat on. Sure does. He sure does. (laughs) Yeah, it's great. And now Joe, we've reached the point of the episode where we sum up why this isn't just a great horror movie but is in fact the best horror movie ever made. And uh, I'm going to wow. let you kick things off. Oh God. Yeah, uh, well, actually right. yeah, uh, talking about it. I don't like, I, I don't like it that much anymore. <laughs> um, well, I think blue velvet is the best horror movie because it is really scary and it has, it captures like the feeling of a nightmare so well. So it kind of fulfills all those, you know, those scares and the, the, the feelings of like, nervousness and horror that you want to get from a great horror movie but it's also just such an amazing like film on its own and you get it like at the end of it you're like like how i feel at the end of a great film like i feel like excited that i've like watched this and been in this world and felt like this you know it's just in all these like great things that cinema does you know yeah. and it scares the shit out of you and haunts you in the middle of it so that's that's my version hell yeah to me this is the best horror movie ever made because Not only are the performances just out of this world, I think that it really is sort of a glimpse into what David Lynch would become, but all of the pieces are there. He's already functioning at such a high level, and this movie only works because of the contrast that he establishes. The weird things can only be weird 
when you have the normalcy of the suburb that you start with. And either you get like Pleasantville, where you just have like this boring suburb the whole time, or you just have the weirdness of this hellish dream situation that he finds himself in. But pairing them together and really playing them off each other to create that feeling of unease and even the like the the glossy suburb stuff, like that unsettles me too, because it does feel so fake and and yeah. and it has like a, a unnatural sheen to it. And I just think that so much of the characterization and thematic elements of it, even if they are laid out pretty explicitly, are wonderful. I think that it's exploring some some dark things, and there is a darkness that lies underneath humanity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think that a lot of people would be afraid to sort of touch this material. And David Lynch not only created it but executes it to perfection mm. in my opinion um and it's supported by an incredible crew the cast is great angelo battlementi like i said um is just killing it it's it's great it's the best horror movie ever made what do you want from me people incredible <laughs> joe i want to thank you so much for coming on the show dude i had a great time and i really i want to give you a chance to tell people where they can find you because your stuff is great oh thanks so much for having me i love this was so much fun um uh, yeah, you can uh, uh, follow me on tw- check me out on Twitter. I'm uh, at Saunders Joe. There you go, nice and easy. There you go. <laughs> um, yeah. As far as my plugs, you can find me on Twitter at Little Horror PHL. You can rate and review the show if you're enjoying it on iTunes. That's always helpful. And if you're really enjoying the show and you're like, I just gotta have more. There's also a Patreon. So if you're looking for early and ad free episodes or bonus episodes where we do all kinds of fun stuff like movie fight stuff like we're in a courtroom and i'm the judge the movie judge (laughs) uh, you know riff track style commentary tracks and everything there's all kinds of good stuff on the patreon and that's patreon.com forward slash little horror phl that's it for me thanks again joe bye